Well, good morning. morning. We're developing the theme of praying effectively. Last week, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, where our Lord instructed us how to pray. And this morning, we're going to answer the question, or perhaps engage in a little thought. Have you ever wished you could hear Jesus pray? You ever wish that you were in the same room when he offered prayer, or perhaps even better, as he was in his private prayer time? You were privileged to be next to him as he offered a prayer to his heavenly father. Well, this morning, we're going to have the privilege of doing that very thing, because this morning, we're going to look at our Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, a passage that is significantly longer than we can cover in this time. So... We're going to narrow the scope and focus. This was the longest recorded prayer of our Lord in Scripture. It was given the night in which he was betrayed in the upper room. And it's found in John chapter 17. It breaks naturally into three parts. In the first five verses, our Lord prays for himself. Then he goes on to pray for the eleven. And then his prayer broadens to include future generations of believers, including you and I. So it's this last portion of the prayer that we're going to be focusing on this morning. And hopefully the application will be twofold. Number one, it'll make us more effective in our prayers in two ways. By observing the language and the manner in which our Lord prays, as well as that for which Christ prays, the content of his prayer. Uh, I, I think you'll be amazed at what he prays for. I know as I went through this prayer, I discovered some things on Christ's agenda that seldom find its way onto my prayer list. And hopefully you'll be challenged to enhance those things that you pray for as well. So let's dive into the text. We're going to see that our Lord basically prays for four things. The first thing Christ prays for is for his followers, the church. In the upper room, Christ is addressing the church. And notice he wants, first of all, for them to experience delight in the scriptures. Again, John chapter 17, beginning of verse 13. But now I come to you, and again, this is our Lord praying to his heavenly Father, And these things I speak in the world so that they, that is his disciples, his followers, may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. Notice here that our Lord is basically saying that joy is found in his word. He says, I speak in the world so they may have my joy. He came to reveal God. He came to reveal God's plan. And he gave that word to his disciples. So the joy that Christ is talking about is something linked to the scriptures. Notice that it is particularly linked to those who respond to the scriptures. And one of the delights of teaching this Bible study is seeing a room full of individuals who know the joy associated with the scriptures, to be committed to studying the word, to taking ownership of the word with a view to embracing its teaching and to following its instruction. So that great joy is sourced in the scriptures and this joy reaches its full potential 
full through Christ. Notice he says that my joy may be made full so that as a result of prayer, we can experience the kind of delight that God intended. Now, what does our Lord mean when he uses the word joy here? Well, I think he means three things. First of all, this kind of joy is found in an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is my desire for all of us as part of this group, that as a result of meeting together, fellowshipping together, praying, that we will experience an ever-deepening relationship with Christ. That relationship occurs in relation to cherishing and following his word. So that to the degree we study it, we embrace it, and by the power of the Holy Spirit seek to imply it, our lives will be changed by it. This is the element that is often missing. There is a beauty to Scripture. There is a fun in studying Scripture. And unfortunately for some people, that's all the joy they ever discover. But there's a deeper joy that sees Christ at work changing us into his image as we respond to his word. And that's the full joy that Christ is talking about. The joy that comes from seeing the spirit work in a way to mold us, to form us into his image. So that's Christ's first request, that we would experience the full joy that he intends for us to derive from his word. Any comments, observations you guys have? Now, the second beautiful element that you'll notice in this prayer is that there is an intentional link it builds in its content. The idea of being sanctified by the scriptures and the joy, the delight that is derived from that is seen in the next portion of his prayer. Notice he prays that you and I as his followers would effectively develop in our sanctity. Notice in verse 14, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, when there's repetition, we need to sit up and take notice. And notice that sanctity has two aspects. Sanctity in its basic meaning means set apart, separated. And here we see that believers are separated from the world. Now, in verse 14 and 16, Christ will twice say that we are not of the world. What that means is that unsaved humanity is going to have a very different perspective on life, on purpose, on right and wrong, and on good and evil. The minute we trust in Christ, we are born again. We have a new nature. We are new creatures. And as a result, we are radically different than those who do not know Christ. So that as those who have a different nature, we are aliens in the world. Now, when John uses the term world, he's referring to unsaved human beings organized in rebellion against God and ruled by Satan. It is a system that is diametrically opposed to God and to his word.
That's why Christ goes on to say that we can expect being hated by the world because the world is not going to agree with our perspective. It's not going to agree with our values. It's not going to agree with our belief system. So the minute we begin to articulate that which we believe, we can expect rejection, resistance, antagonism, and a variety of hostile responses to what we are sharing. But notice our Lord says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So we are stationed here in the world like lighthouses, ambassadors, to represent the truth in a fallen world. As a matter of fact, the more compelling our light, the more effective we are in drawing the lost to the way, the truth, and the life that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that our Lord also prays that we would be protected from the wicked one. We also saw this in the Lord's Prayer um, when we prayed, uh, you know, that uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word evil there could be a reference to the evil one and to Satan. So that notice that Christ, on the one hand, is praying that we would live separated lives, sanctified lives, lives that are decidedly different in their character and in their conduct than the world in which we live. So that believers are to be separated from the world, not withdrawn. Don't you love this monastery? I mean, some believers still do this today that they're in the world, but they live a very isolated existence. This is not how Christ wants believers to exist. However, on the flip side, he doesn't want the pressure of the world to cause us to compromise. If our light, if you will, is on a rheostat, he doesn't want us to turn it down so that it's barely indistinguishable from the environment around us. As a matter of fact, one definition of worldliness is the fact that the world, under Satan's rule, tries to cause believers to lose their enjoyment of the Father's love or their desire to do his will. And sadly, he's very effective at doing that. So that worldliness is basically the world's attempt to seduce believers from allegiance to Christ to losing their enthusiasm for Christ and for God's word and adopting its perspectives and its ways of doing things. Now that's the first half of sanctity, separation from the world. In a moment, we'll turn and look at the half that is devotion to God. Before we get there, any comments, observations on this aspect of our Lord's prayer in John 17? Any comments? Yeah. How can we instill this more in our young people as they go to college? I know a lot of stuff I'm stupid and, yeah. and couldn't, you know, I'm the car going up through this hill. Uh, and so <laughs> is, is there a, a way you found to help people being in college? Basically, the answer is in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is true. Uh, this, this book is amazing. And to the degree that you have a young person that you can get into the scriptures, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's listening to solid materials, um, it's the word that changes lives. 
and I can do everything that I can to uh, create an environment where they feel free to ask questions and to dialogue, to share their discussions. I would say that's probably the other thing, a group, whoops, a group like this where either with you individually or a peer group where they feel free to share their struggles, to ask questions about the scripture when there are things that they don't understand. Uh, but that's why, you know, encouraging them to be in the scriptures is probably the most powerful tool that the Lord could use in their lives. I'm going to send this to my granddaughter. She's at a, at a, at a, a religious school, and she says it's getting big crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's the sad thing. Even Christian colleges may not be Christian anymore uh, with drift and compromise of a variety of different kinds. As a matter of fact, if you have a Bible professor questioning the inspiration of Scripture, that does more damage. You expect that to come from the world. You don't expect it to come from the Bible prophet or Christian college. And that's, those are the kind that even do more damage. Yeah, comment. Was, was Jim Greer your predecessor? I've, I know Jim Greer, I've, I've heard him present, but I didn't know him personally, so. I used to tell my pastor, it's the word. Excellent. Just remember, it's the word. Exactly. And see, that's the thing that Satan is most worried about. It's the sword of the spirit. If he can get a soldier to, to keep his sword in its sheath, or better yet, leave it at home, he's won half the battle, because the only other piece of armor, we all the other pieces are defensive, the shield, the breastplate, and things like that. It's the sword of the spirit that we can use to fight the temptations of Satan in the world. Great observation. Any other comments? Okay, now he's going to move on from the negative side of sanctification to the positive side. Notice in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. A ton of theology in this verse. Notice, first of all, he uses the word sanctify. He's going to use it three times in verses 17, 18, and 19. Sanctify basically means set apart or separated. From the world, he's already talked about that. He hasn't used the word sanctify, but the content of that concept has already been there. Now he's going to turn and talk about being sanctified to God and his purposes. So dedicated, devoted, set apart for his use. Notice that the means is the word of God. Now, notice three things. First of all, sanctification does not occur apart from Scripture. That's why when you ask the question, you know, I've got a young person, I've got a spouse, I've got a grandparent who needs to be equipped for the world. Sanctification is deeply rooted in the revelation of Scripture. If you want to grow, if you want to combat the world effectively, this is the tool God has given us to use in that context. Secondly, it is absolutely reliable, completely and authoritatively. If I were quizzing you and asked you, um, where would you go to prove inspiration? Where would you go? What's the most common verse that you go to to defend the doctrine of inspiration? All scripture is God's word. Excellent. Do you know the reference? 
Timothy 3.16. Got it. That's probably the, the, the most frequently quoted and one of the strongest evidences for inspiration. I think this one is equally powerful because notice what our Lord says. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Now, that not only means that it's true, it's accurate and reliable, but it also means that it's, un, it, it's God's unchanging standard of belief and behavior. So this is the standard. This is the, uh, the compass to guide us. It's the sword to defend us. It's the food that nourishes us. There's a variety of different directions you can go. But when you study the Word of God, it is unadulterated truth. And as a result, it is a pure source of what we need to live life skillfully in this world. Notice, finally, believers will be set apart from the world and equipped for service insofar as we live in conformity to the world. There's no surprise here. The more we know of Scripture and the more we conform, the more the Spirit will work in conjunction with the Word to conform us to the image of Christ. So this is where my study of this passage became really convicting. How am I doing? Am, am I able to cite Scripture and find Scripture? That's a good thing. Am I being conformed to Scripture? That's even better. Notice that is my character being formed and, and um, refined to become more like Jesus Christ? A number of years ago, I was developing a course in the Doctrine of the Local Church, and I put together a list of the qualifications of elders, which is one list in Scripture of what a godly man looks like. 20 marks of spiritual maturity, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. After preparing for class, I began to reflect on it and said, you know, I wonder how I'm doing in terms of actually reflecting these marks in my own personal life. And so I decided to give a copy of that sheet. You could do the same thing with the fruit of the Spirit to a couple people I appreciated and said, read over this list and pick one area that you see God working in my life and one area where you think I could improve. And you know, it was amazing. I gave it to two people, and both of them agreed on the same area. And I said to myself, that's what I need to target. If I'm going to get serious about growing in Christ-likeness, I need to be serious about addressing those areas in my life where I am still not conforming wholly to God's Word. As a matter of fact, I shared this in a class one time, and I had a student um, say, hey, I'd like to do that list. So I said, okay, well, let's meet. Why don't you give this to two of your friends, bring them back, and we'll, we'll go from there. And like with me, we, we opened up the envelopes, and I said, well, this one says you have a tr trouble, you're quick-tempered. And opened up the other envelope, and it said, wow, this one says you're quick-tempered too. <laughs> what do you think his immediate response was? <laughs> he got angry. <laughs> I am not quick-tempered. And after do going on for two or three minutes, he stopped mid-sentence, and he said, I guess I'm proving I need to work on being quick-tempered. <laughs> 
But that's not the end of the story. We began to read scripture together. We began to pray together. Six months later, he meets me outside my office. And this guy was not an early person. He said, I got to talk to you. And I said, all right, what happened? He said, I was teaching the youth and one of the parents showed up and was really rude to me. And I'm thinking, and this guy is happy about this? And he said, no, you don't understand. He said, six months ago, I would have blown up at that guy and been all over him. But by God's grace, I maintained self-control when he was finished. We worked through the issues. It ended with a hug and we worked things out. That is joy. That's the kind of full joy that the Lord wants all of us to experience. Whether it's getting a handle on your um, anger or like with me, becoming more kind and compassionate. Uh, learning how to be sensitive to the needs of others and then actually do something about it. Getting serious about growing in Christ-likeness of character or of conduct. There's a host of things that you and I can avoid doing. There's a host of things that you and I can actively do. This is a series in praying more effectively. Some of you are prayer warriors, and yet there's always aspects that can be enhanced. For some of you, even having a regular prayer time would be a bold mark of progress in your spiritual life. Wherever you are, the challenge before us is to start somewhere and begin pursuing Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's Christ's desire. That's what he's praying for in this prayer. Now, any questions or comments on that? Observations. Okay, notice that in John, sanctification is always with regard to a mission or purpose. And as a result, he's going to go on in verse 18 to tell us the purpose. As you sent me, again, this is in the context of a prayer, into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So that notice the purpose is for us to be sent into the darkness as the light. That in our language, in our conduct, in our uh, choices, we so radiate the life of Christ that an unbelieving world sees the difference that Christ can make in a person's life. In verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves may be sanctified in the truth. One of the fascinating aspects of the word sanctification is actually used of our Lord himself. Christ was set apart by the Father for a very specific task. He came into the world to reveal God and to redeem us to God. We similarly have been set apart from, by God for a very specific task, a special mission from the Father. And as a result, we have been sanctified with a message to share and a lifestyle to model before an unbelieving world. So once again, notice it is his sacrifice that makes this possible. We are only sanctified by virtue of that which Christ has done for us. So that sanctification 
here's a definition, is love for Christ. That's what should be driving. This isn't legalism. I don't read my Bible as a good work. I read the Bible because I love the, the person who spoke these words. I love the person who revealed its truth that is shown in purity of belief, character, and conduct in response to the word by the power of the Holy Spirit modeled after the Savior. That's the standard. That's the paradigm to become more like Christ that serves as a witness to the world made possible by the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, that's a longer definition. I don't expect you to memorize it, but notice what I tried to do and what I would encourage you as you read a passage, all of these elements can be found in John 17. All of these elements are what it means to be sanctified as the Lord is praying for us to be sanctified. And of course, the conviction moved in as I prepared this, and I asked myself, do I pray for this? When was the last time I prayed that I might be more fully sanctified in my character, in my conduct, and more effective because of my sanctity and my witness to the world? Notice that praying effectively means finding out what's on God's heart and making that part of what we pray for on a regular basis. Any questions or comments, observations, things you'd like to share? All right. So Christ prays for us to experience full joy on the basis of his word. So that as we see God work, there's this internal sense of delight as our relationship with Christ consistently deepens. That results in our developing in sanctity, separated from the world, dedicated to God. So that we increasingly produce the fruit of a godly life, godly character, and godly beliefs. Now, Christ prays, not only will you and I do it individually, he wants us to do it as a group. All of you in here are part of a local church. Praying this on behalf of your local church ought to be part of your prayer life. But you're also part of this group, Iron to Iron. And so, notice that this part of the prayer says, let's do it together. And so, that's why you're here this morning. You could be studying John 17 on your own, but part of the dynamic of coming out, of rubbing shoulders together, of maybe being one of those accountability partners who when a friend of yours says, I really want to work on fill in the blank, you can nurture, you can encourage, you can fuel the flame in that person's life to help them become more like Christ. Notice in verses 20 and 21, our Lord continues his prayer. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Here it becomes explicit that he's praying for us as well as the 11, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that notice that Christ's prayer here is for a group unity. 
So he's moved beyond individual sanctification to the group, and he prays that we might be united in character. We're going to see in verse 22, specifically love, and united in purpose or mission. So when Christ says that they may be one, I think those are the two specific ways in which he is looking for our unity to be expressed to be united in character, so that I would love to think that as a result of studying the word together, you and I increasingly become more like Christ, where your children, your grandchildren, your spouse says, I don't know what's happened to you, but you're becoming more like Christ every day. That's the goal, that's the desire, our attitude, our behavior, united in mission. Christ has sent us into the world to win the lost and ground them in the faith. Notice that in order for that to happen, there has to be a stark contrast between us and the world, a stark contrast that is so marked that the world believes that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Another way of putting it is, there is no way to explain you or me apart from the transforming power of the gospel and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we live in a world where there are a lot of good people. This is far more than goodness. This is a godliness that the world cannot explain apart from the change that occurs when we believe in Christ who is sent by the Father and the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. So that notice in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that may, they may be one just as we are one. Now glory here refers to the revealed character and purpose, the majesty of God. Christ came to reveal the glory of the Father, his character and his purpose, he has given that glory to us by grace through faith. When we believe the gospel, his righteousness is imputed to us so that we possess his glory. He also gives us a new nature. So now we have the capacity to reflect the character of God and to accomplish his mission in the world. And like in verse 21, in verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So that notice this is important to Christ, that as a result of our being set apart to him and being transformed into his likeness, we present a credible presentation to the world of the transforming power of the gospel. Now, any comments, observations on that? Yeah. I got one read in a book about the early church, and uh, the Romans were killing the Christians. You know, one guy was writing to another. It's kind of like, well, it's a shame we got to kill them, because not only do they treat their poor well, they treat our poor better than we do. So it was a big, they saw the difference, the distinction. Exactly. And one reason I love you guys is because I think that's true of many of us in here that when we rub shoulders with an unbelieving world, that testimony is already out there. 
But if I could be used of the Lord this morning, it's to challenge all of us to even radiate the life of Christ more and to encourage each other in that opportunity. As I was thinking of how I might illustrate this, you know, snowflakes are impressive individually. I remember one day I was walking to class early in the morning, these huge snowflakes were, were falling. And so I stopped to look at one and they are absolutely gorgeous. And each and every one of you in this room is a work of art like a snowflake. But you know, when those snowflakes really get together, that's when you begin to sit up and take notice, like a blizzard or a snowstorm. We've got the potential as a bunch of flakes, and pun intentional, to attract significant attention to what God can do in the life of one who has trusted in his son and believes the gospel. So rather than iron to iron, maybe we should be the fellowship of the flakes. But either way, we need to make a difference in the world for the cause of Christ. Any questions? Other observations you have? Yeah. I would like to add in Hebrews 4.12, mm -hmm. the word of God is living and that gives us the power. Exactly. All this way. And when we hear you speak, the word of God in us says amen to the word of God you're speaking. Absolutely. The lip, Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than two, any two-edged sword. And that's what I hope you leave here with today is a sense of the power of the word of God to fight a fallen world and to change us into the likeness of Christ. Well, now notice that Believers provide compelling evidence for the truth of the gospel by mature godly character and conduct that can only be explained by the presence of divine life. That last phrase is the key thing. There's got to be something different about our goodness that causes an unbelieving world to say there is something different about that person and I like the difference. Now, our Lord's going to finish the prayer with something that is truly remarkable. Notice the goal is in verse 24. And let these words sink in. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Do you hear what our Lord is saying there? He can't wait for you to come home. He wants you to be in his very presence. Notice he goes on to say, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice that Christ wants you in his presence as part of his family. Now, as a group of guys, we've got love for each other. Many of you enjoy talking to each other when you arrive. If someone invited you to breakfast, depending on who it was, you may or may not go out with them. Maybe was there some in this room who, if you're going on a retreat, would think about asking them to go along with you because you enjoy their company, they're a, a genuine joy to be around. But notice that the love of Christ goes far beyond any of that. Our Lord loves you so much that he actually wants you to come live under the same roof. I don't know if there's anybody in this room that you would actually want to live together with. But that's the, yeah, the, that's the kind of love that Christ has for you. He wants you at his table. 
He wants you in his fellowship. And that's why we should love in return. And again, he wants us to experience face-to-face -face fellowship with him in love, to see him in his unveiled glory. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration, what Peter, James, and John saw when they beheld Christ in his glory. Christ wants us to be that close and that privileged that we can be in his presence and see him in all of the beauty, all of the majesty, all of the splendor that is part of his person. And so again, the convicting part as I work through the prayer is when was the last time I prayed like that? Do I long for that as well? Am I looking forward to going home and being with Christ as, more as, as much as he is looking forward to me being there? Notice that if we're going to pray effectively, it means allowing the Word of God to adjust the way we think so that we're praying according to God's playbook. We're praying for the very things that are heavy on God's heart so that as men who are committed to praying effectively, we resolve to be set apart from the world to God. Any concluding comments, observations? Yeah. I was just thinking of, about all of this too. Is is I always think about that God wants all of this for us. That you know that we are that we are sinful, and that that God that despite all of the sin, that God knows that you know as the fallible people that we are, that all of this is still within that context of knowing wanting all of this for us. Exactly. Despite of our sinful nature and how we are going to live in the world that we're not going to be perfect, but yet God, we are challenged in all of these areas to be more like Christ, despite in the, the sinful nature that, that God knows that we are, that we have. So, Thanks for sharing that. And again, as you chew on something as you leave and chew on something, that insight is, is profound and worthy of reflecting on. That despite our fallenness, despite our finiteness, despite our our inability to live up to Christ's prayer to the fullness that he has made provision for. He still loves us and he still wants us in his presence. Excellent observation. Think that it just means perfection, of, uh, that to be with God means that you are perfect, then you're not. Exactly. Part of, I think, the important thing with and sharing the word with others too. Excellent. Excellent. You had a comment or question? I was going to say it's really interesting that even though we're still sinful, I haven't really thought about how God wants us to live under the same roof. Like, I can, I can think of, I'm glad that I get to live with my brother, but I can't imagine if somebody was like hating me, like saying like, well, they like, Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, can you imagine inviting someone who hated you to live with you? But that's the transforming power of the gospel. That in response to his love, we've accepted his offer, and now we have the benefit of enjoying eternal life in his presence. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for our Lord, how he came sent, sanctified by you, to accomplish your will. And as a result of his death on our behalf and his bodily resurrection, 
we can become your child. Lord, we pray that we would experience the joy that comes with your word and being transformed like it by it, that we would be set apart from the world unto you with a heart of loyalty and devotion, not only as individuals, but as a group. And may we bring honor, glory, and praise to your name. May we look forward to that day when we'll all be gathered under one roof in a family that will be deep and rich and eternal. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.